and change us and transform us and make us more like yourself. Speak, O Lord, and constrain in us a deeper obedience, a more full obedience to the praise of your great and glorious name. Come by your spirit and take this, your word, and drill it into our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, PSA, before we begin, public service announcement. Um, may I implore you, um, I, I know I'm just back and, and been gone a bunch and stuff, but may I implore you that you, that you think about coming this evening to our Sunday supper Um, bring a bucket of chicken, bring a basket of greens, bring some chocolate chip cookies. I I don't care, but these are not things we do to fill space. This is an opportunity for us to be together as a family, and and frankly, it's an opportunity for you to to, to kind of peer through the window and gain maybe some insight into the fact that we're not just concerned about ourselves here at Christ the King. We really are trying to follow Jesus and being concerned for the nations, and what I want to do this evening, I'm going to preach a short sermon. Don't let that scare you away. It'll be short. I'm going to preach a short sermon as an illustration, and then I just want to share with you some recent developments related to Tanzania. And for those of you who don't know about this ministry, it would be a great way for you to be exposed to it. So, so, so please come, um, and the food will get multiplied. It's happened before. We're not too concerned about that. So, so that's the PSA. Please join us. Now, um, I, I was thinking about doing something that I've never done in this church. In fact, I've never done it any place where I've been the pastor, but I'm not going to do it. I, because it would create embarrassment. Here's what I was going to I was going to ask for a show of hands this morning. I was going to ask how many of you did your homework assignment from three weeks ago? Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. How many of you did your homework assignment from three weeks ago? The the assignment, strange as it may seem, there are actually two of them. One was to count the number of times the word justify or justification appeared in the first five, six, seven, eight chapters of Romans. The other was to listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Because I suggested using Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as an illustration that just like the last movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony starts out with this incredible crescendo sort of rising to this place of incredible exuberance and, and even victory and, and you, you just have this sense that, that something is being conquered here, you know. There's this incredible transition from the third movement into the fourth movement. And that fourth movement just you know, begins with all this power. You know, it's powerful. And you get about three and a half minutes into that last movement, and it all backs off. And it all backs off. And you listen to analyses of, the sur- of that symphony, which is a kind of a sermon, and the themes that are introduced way back in the first movement, the, the, what, what's called the fate motif in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, it appears again. 
And it's this sort of haunting and kind of threatening return of this voice from the first movement. It's like, you, you know, you, you think you're at the summit. And then you back away from the summit because there's still this haunting theme that has yet to be fully overcome. And that haunting theme lasts for just a little while before Beethoven returns and presents for us in a sonic form the final return of Jesus, where he conquers all of his enemies fully and finally, putting them under his feet. The Greeks believed that music was a sonic expression of the nature of reality. And I am convinced that the realities of the gospel are so deeply woven into the fabric of all of reality that occasionally somebody like Ludwig van Beethoven stumbles on them and produces a symphony out of them, perhaps without even realizing what he's doing. That's where we are in chapter 9. We thought we were at the summit at the end of chapter 8. Nothing in all the creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, not anything in the whole of the creation. We think we're at the apex, but we're in those first few minutes of the last movement. And Paul backs off from that because there is more to be considered. And the thing to be considered is this heartbreaking reality of unbelief among his kinsmen. Unbelief among his kinsmen. Yes, why do these chapters appear here right now? 9, 10, and 11. Why are they here? It's not a new section. It's not a new theme. It's Paul continuing to work out what he started to work out way back in the first chapter, let me, give you, let me give you three pegs to hang this passage on. Three, three ways, if you will, of seeing what is here and of beginning to work it out so that we understand what's going on with the Apostle Paul. Here's the first peg. What we're seeing here is the gospel of the Apostle. What we're seeing here is the heart of of the apostle, and what we're seeing here is the deep and profound love of the apostle. We're seeing in these verses, these first five verses, and then 9, 10, and 11, we're seeing more of the gospel of the apostle, and in these verses, we're seeing especially, though we see it again in chapter 10, verses 1 and following, we're seeing the heart of the apostle, and we're witness also to the deep and profound love of the Apostle. So first, we're seeing here the gospel of the Apostle. Let's remember the gospel of the Apostle. Let's remember the gospel that was introduced in those first verses of chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, or 16 and 17, where Paul says, I hate this verse, I have to tell you. 
He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I've been on airplanes a bit, you know, the last couple of weeks. I get on airplanes sitting next to people I don't know. I pray nobody asks me what I do for a living. Oh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's the gospel that he introduces in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And if you read through these first eight chapters, you can see Paul sort of, you know, he's like a, one of those silver balls in, a, in, a, in a, one of those machines, you know, where you shoot it up and it boings off of things. You can see Paul sort of bouncing back and forth between his awareness of the Jewish listeners in the audience And his awareness of the Gentile listeners in the audience. The churches in Rome were made up of Jews and Gentiles. Probably first, obviously, founded by some Jews. Maybe some Jews from Rome who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Who went back home to Rome and told their friends and their neighbors, He's come! And some of them believed. And churches were started in Rome. But then in the 40s, there were these persecutions and the Jews had to leave Rome. And then, and when they left, then Gentiles, having heard this gospel, having been incorporated into the churches, Gentiles became the dominant influence in the churches. But by the time Paul writes this letter, the persecution has ended. Perhaps people are coming back. The point is, it's mixed. It's Jew and Gentile. And you can hear Paul, read the chapters, you can hear him bouncing back and forth between Jew and Gentile, speaking to Jew, then speaking to Gentile. But through it all, in multiple different ways, he is saying, this gospel is for all. It's for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek So you see it in chapter 1, you see it in chapter 2, you see it in chapter 3, verse 9, all alike, both Jew and Gentile are under sin. 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is there for all who would believe. So that in chapter 2, verse 28, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, the true Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart. It's not a matter of outward things. It's a matter of an internal work of the Spirit. So whether Jew or Gentile, the true sons and daughters of Abraham, chapter 4, are those who, like Abraham, have believed God and it was credited to them for righteousness. Whether Jew or Gentile. See, it's for all. But that poses, doesn't it? It poses a couple of massive problems for the Apostle Paul. This is his gospel. This is the gospel that he's been preaching for 25 years. The the gospel is this, friends. I mean, it's way bigger than this. But it starts here. It starts with this understanding that whether you are Jewish 
or not, you are received back into fellowship with a holy and righteous God solely and exclusively on the basis of what Jesus has done in your behalf apart from anything you've done. That's where the gospel starts. It doesn't end there. The gospel ends with the final restoration of everything, the final liberation of the creation from its curse, the final restoration of your broken and wearing down bodies and souls, the final harmonization of everything in a new heaven and new earth. That's where it ends. But it begins here. This is the gospel Paul preached. He preached it to Jews. He preached it to Gentiles. This is how a person is justified, received back into fellowship with God on the basis of the finished work of Christ, his obedience, his substitutionary death, his resurrection and ascension, all appropriated and received as a gift offered freely and received by faith. That's the gospel Paul has been preaching. But you see, it presents some problems, doesn't it? It presents a couple of massive problems. The first one is this, and Paul sort of alludes to it in chapter 3. And then he continues to talk about it in these verses in chapter 9. If that's true, Paul, if Jew and Gentile alike are received back into fellowship with God, apart from anything they are, their ethnicity, or do their keeping of the law or their practice of circumcision, if people are received back into communion and fellowship with God, apart from all of these things, then what advantage does the Jew have? Where's the advantage? Chapter 3, he says, much in every way, because to them have been entrusted the oracles of God. The oracles of God, the very words of God, the very truth of God, God's speech put in written form, entrusted to Israel. What advantage does the Jew have? The Jew has all of these advantages. Verses 4 and 5, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory. What glory? The glory of Mount Sinai. The glory that inhabited and dwelled in the midst of the people, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. The very presence of God in the midst of that nation, not any other nation on the face of the earth. The glory. The covenants. What covenants? With Abraham. And then with David and with Moses and the promise of a new covenant communicated through the prophets. All of this was given to them. Extraordinary privileges. Not only the covenants, the giving of the law and, and worship and all of the promises, the promise of a coming redeemer, a savior, a conqueror who would destroy evil and eradicate evil's presence from the realm of God. The patriarchs who were the source of the race and the Christ who is the fruit of the flesh of Abraham and the fruit of the flesh of the patriarchs and who is the fulfillment of all of those promises. You ask, why does Israel exist? One reason, my friends. One reason. It's not a slice of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. 
Israel exists for one reason, to give birth to the Messiah, the conqueror, who would bring in a kingdom of righteousness and who would rescue a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. A Messiah not of a nation, a Messiah of the nations. That is why Israel exists. She is the woman. She is the mother. She gives birth to the seed who is the savior of the world. And all of this was Israel's. Paul, you're saying people are restored to fellowship with God apart from what they do or are or any of the rest. So where's the advantage? Tremendous advantage. I don't know if you can see this. This is a pink tie. It's a rep tie. It's pink and it's blue. I bought this for Lucy's baptism. And I bought it actually in anticipation of the prospect that still other grandchildren might be born who might be boys, in which case I would need a blue tie. But I got it nailed, both pink and blue. And I got to baptize Lucy. I got to hold this covenant child in my hands and apply the waters of baptism to her head. Jesus is her only hope. The waters of baptism, apart from the gracious influence of Jesus, will serve to be waters of judgment, not of blessing. She needs Jesus. Does she have privilege and advantage? You bet she does. She needs Jesus as much as her pagan neighbor's child needs Jesus. But she has advantage. She has a mom and a dad who love Jesus and who will pray for her and who vowed before God that they would pray for her. She has grandparents who will pray for her. She has aunts and uncles who will pray for her. She has exposure to the gospel, which only increases her responsibility and which only increases the sense of grief that occurs in the heart of a parent or a grandparent when a covenant child repudiates the only hope there is in life. You ask, why is Paul's grief so deep? Because he knows how blessed the Israelites are. we got a problem here, Paul. It seems to us. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's not a problem. There is great advantage in being a Jew. There is great advantage in being a child of the covenant. We're going to bring those two Turner babies up here in a few weeks. We're going to put water on them. And together as a congregation, we're going to affirm that God has done a glorious and gracious thing by placing those twins in a covenant household in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful and glorious thing. But those kids need Jesus. They're privileged to be in a place where they'll hear about him and they'll be prayed for. Great advantage. So Paul is answering that issue. He's saying, look, there's great advantage in this. Well, there's another problem, Paul. Here's the problem. Here's the gut-wrenching, heartbreaking problem, Paul. And it was for Paul, and I suspect it was for others. Paul, it seems that so few of those to whom these promises were made, to whom these gifts were given, are actually believing it. 
Paul, you say it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But as we look at our day and time, and I'm projecting us back into the first century, the days of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, you look around and the vast majority of those who are responding to the gospel are not Jews, but they are Gentiles. That's a problem. And it's that problem that Paul is addressing in 9, 10, and 11. He addresses the first problem in these first five verses and in the first few verses of chapter 3. Is there an advantage? Huge, ginormous. But what about the problem of widespread unbelief in the midst of Israel? Paul's going to answer that question and deal with it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he's going to answer it by answering three questions. I'll give you the outline and then we'll move on. The first question he's going to answer as he responds to the issue of of unbelief in the midst of the Jews, the first question he's going to answer is this, has God's promise failed? And in chapter 9, verses 6 to 29, he will say no. And he'll explain to us why. The second question, which he'll answer in verses 30 of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10, why doesn't Israel believe? And then the third question he's going to answer. He'll answer in chapter 11, verses 1 through 31, 32. Has God finally and forever rejected his people? And he will say no. Those are the three questions that he's going to address, that he's going to deal with in these three chapters. Has God's promise failed? Why doesn't Israel believe And has God finally and forever rejected his people? You see, what Paul is concerned about here, what Paul's concerned about here is the integrity of the gospel first. He's concerned about the integrity of the gospel. It's the integrity of the gospel that is under assault. You've said it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You've said it's for everyone, but that includes the Jews. So help me understand. Paul is concerned in these chapters to defend the integrity of the gospel that he introduced in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But here's the second thing. And this leads us into the second point. Let's understand, as we look at this passage, particularly these five verses, let's understand that this isn't a subject of mere theological interest for the Apostle Paul. Do you see that? Do you see that Paul isn't just concerned to answer your questions about the future state of Israel? Do you see that Paul is concerned here about people. And this is where we get a window into the heart of the apostle. The apostle cares about people. My heart is breaking for my kinsmen according to the flesh. Look at the verses. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
Right? He has to sort of multiply and heap up these phrases to persuade these folks that he's in earnest in what he's been saying and he's in earnest in what he is saying. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. If this were a court of law and the God of heaven and earth could be brought into this court of law to testify in my behalf, the God of heaven and earth would testify in my behalf that I am telling you the sober truth. My heart's sorrow and unceasing anguish is for my kinsmen according to the flesh. So intense in it, though it is an impossibility, I could wish myself accursed, impaled upon a cross, suffering the full measure of God's wrath so that they, as he puts it in chapter 10, might be saved. Paul knows that's an impossibility. He knows he can't die for anybody else. He's going to die for anybody. He's going to die for himself. That's the whole point of the cross. Jesus died for him so that he doesn't die for himself. He can't die for somebody else. There is one whom God has appointed to die for the sins of his people. Jesus. Jesus who lived a righteous life in order to be a substitute for those who have lived unrighteous lives. That's the math. That's the calculus. And Paul understands that. But it's indicative of the depth of his grief and his sorrow that he looks around and he sees in case after case after case that these his kinsmen who have been entrusted with these incredible blessings are rejecting and repudiating them. We're getting a window into the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul gets such a bad rap from modern scholars. He's going to dive into this incredible mystery of election and predestination. John Calvin didn't bring it up. Augustine didn't raise the issue. The Bible raises the issue. Paul raised the issue. Can I say this pastorally and politely? If you're going to be offended by the idea of election and predestination, you've got to take it up with God. It's his issue. But do you see, do you see that Paul doesn't jump immediately from the end of chapter 8 into some theoretical discussion of election and predestination? Do you see his heart breaking for people? Philippians 3.18, he reminds us that there are those who are enemies of the gospel. And even as he reminds the readers of his letter to the Philippians that there are enemies of the gospel, he says he does so with tears. He weeps over this stuff. His heart breaks over this. And I'll suggest to you, his heart breaks over this for a couple of reasons. But at the center of those reasons is what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. The Gentiles have a window into the truth and the things that have been made, they suppress that truth. The result is that they are exposed to God's wrath and judgment. The Jews have not only that, but they have the oracles of God. And to the extent that they suppress that truth, they're exposed to wrath and judgment. His heart breaks over this. Paul knows that when he walks the streets of Rome, as he hopes to do, 
as he has walked the streets of Ephesus or Philippi, every single person he passed is headed for a destiny either of unimaginable glory or unimaginable terror. And he looks at his kinsmen and his heart breaks and he weeps at the prospect. How do we view those around us? How do we view those around us? How do we see those whom we pass by each day? Here's what Paul didn't do. He didn't just jump into election and predestination and say, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. God has ordained it. That puts an end to it. Let's move on. Do you see the humanity in this? And let me suggest this to you. Let me suggest to you that the Apostle Paul learned this from his master. Think about this. It's stunning. Think about John chapter 9. The death, I'm sorry, John chapter 11. The death of Lazarus. Jesus clearly knew what he was going to do. Jesus is no mere prophet, no mere human being. He is God incarnate. If you read the early verses of chapter 11 of John's gospel, it is inescapable to me. It seems inescapable, though the commentators don't really want to come out and say this. It is inescapable to me that Jesus stayed precisely where he was when the messengers came to inform him that Lazarus was sick and he was going to die soon. Jesus stayed precisely where he was for two more days to ensure that Lazarus would be certifiably dead. Because he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to get to that tomb. And he knew that he was going to speak words of power that would prove for everybody who was there that had eyes to see and ears to hear that he is who he says he is. He is the resurrection and the life. He knew what he was going to do. And he wanted to make sure that Lazarus was certifiably dead, entombed, stone rolled against the opening so that his lordship and power could be put on display. But do you notice that when he gets there, when he gets to the grave, he weeps. He doesn't arrive on the scene and say, Booyah! Let's go! He weeps. He weeps at how sin ravages human life. He weeps at the loss of a friend. He weeps at the unbelief of those who are there. He grieves deeply. The word in the text describes those deep, heaving sobs. He wept at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. It's a strange juxtaposition of things, isn't it? It's a strange setting of things side by side. Paul knows what he's going to talk about in the rest of nine. He knows that he's going to talk about election and predestination. He knows that he has answers to these questions. But at the same time, you see the heart of one who understands what is at stake. And he learned it 
from his master. Luke chapter 16, as Jesus, as Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem on the mountain overlooking the city, he knows he'll be betrayed. He knows he will be executed. He knows that his disciples will flee him and leave him alone. He knows it's all going to happen. It's ordained. It is the predetermined counsel of God. He doesn't say, Booyah, let's get on with it. Knowing that he will come out victorious on the other side, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. His heart breaks over their unbelief. And do you know where Jesus learned it? Jesus learned it from his father. Jesus learned it from his father. Paul learned it from Jesus. And Jesus learned it from his father, who said in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from their way and live. That's the God of heaven and earth looking upon people who've rejected him and not saying, booyah, let's get on with it. but weeping over the unbelief among his own people. And I would suggest to you by extension, unbelief in the midst of the nations of the world. How do you think about those around you? Here's why I ask this question. Here's why I ask this question. I ask this question because we are Christians, my friends. And we find ourselves, we find ourselves in a kind of a vortex of political emphases, foci, messages, agendas with respect to people who are our enemies. You understand what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the whole Islamic world. I'm talking about these nations that are engulfed in the unbelief of Islam. And that whole issue for you and for me has been politicized and militarized and agendaized and everything else. How do, my friends, how do you, how do I view Ahmed at the local 7-Eleven? How do I see Iran? How do I see Iraq? How do I see Indonesia? How do I see Egypt? How do I see Libya? How do I see these people? Are there political issues here? Are there military, defense issues, foreign policy issues? You betcha. But for me as a Christian, what's the greater issue? These people, every single one of them a human being, enemies of ours. are headed to an eternity either of absolute incomprehensible blessing and glory or unimaginable terror. When those, when those airplanes hit those towers, we grieve to the loss of human life. 
rightly. We should have. We still should. Do we understand there were human beings flying those airplanes? And much to their surprise and great tragedy, there were not 70 virgins waiting on the other side. They were face to face with the righteous, holy God of heaven and earth. How do we view those around us? These people were Paul's enemies. Read Acts. I'm reading Acts in my Bible reading program. Beginning in chapter 9, after Paul's conversion, they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him his whole life. He's, he's saying these things about people who tried to kill him and who were continuing to try to kill him. They were his enemies and his heart broke for them. And that leads to the last thing, the concluding thing, just very, very quickly. What you see as you look into the heart of the Apostle Paul is a deep and profound love for those who are his enemy. How do you, how do you find a love for those whom you do not love and who are your enemy. I think there's only one possible answer to that question. Paul understood that he was the enemy. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said. And in grace and mercy, the risen reigning Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse, invaded his contemptible, wicked heart and transformed it. So that rather than being one who hated the risen Jesus, he loved the risen Jesus who first loved him. There's a bumper sticker that you see around. There are some right things about it, and there are some deeply flawed things in it, and there is a tremendous inadequacy about it. The bumper sticker is the bumper sticker that says coexist. My friends, as Christians, that bumper sticker doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go far enough. You and I are not called simply to coexist alongside those who differ from us. We are called to love them, even when they are our enemies. There are two ways to constrain obedience, it seems to me. Two ways and two ways only. Law. Law. I can tell you to go love those who are your enemies. I can tell you that God says, go love those who are your enemies. 
You won't even listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Why should I expect you'll go love those who are your enemies? Law will not get it done, my friends. It is only love that will constrain you and enable you to love those who are your enemies, as Paul did. How great the Father's love for us, that he should give his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Whosoever believes in him, is it possible for an Islamic terrorist to be converted to Jesus Christ? If you're living in the first century in Jerusalem and you look at the Apostle Paul, you say, impossible. And he was converted and became an apostle of Jesus Christ. God, give us grace to love, to pray for, to seek the well-being of those even who are our enemies.